Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, a man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Monday, February the 11th, 2013. And this is episode 1068 of the Survival Podcast. Since it's Monday Glum Day, and it is a Monday Glum Day here, it's cold, it's uh, overcast, it's cloudy, it's wet, it's just one of those blah days. Hopefully I can uh, bring a little bit of positivity into your lives uh, with some uh, really great listener feedback. These are all emails with comments, articles, videos, anything like that, sent to me at jack at the survival com. If you want to do this for a future show, here's what you do. You figure out what you want to tell me. You tell me really, really quick, and you give me all the details after you tell me. So if you have a question, you say, Jack, my question is, and you do it in two sentences or less, and then you put down a couple of returns on that uh, keyboard, so you space it out so I can see it clearly, and then you give me all the details you want to do, and I go in there and get them if I need them. Or you uh, send me a link to a story or a video or something like that. Please, if you do that, give me one sentence on why the hell I should care because just, when I just get a link, sometimes I don't click on it because you never know if it's maybe somebody hacked your email or something. So tell me why the heck I should look at it in one or two sentences and give me the link. And then I'll go look at it and I'll go through several hundred of these every week and I'll pull out 10 or 12 for a Monday show. But the format to make sure you get reviewed is to put in the subject line, question for Jack, article for Jack, comment for Jack, idea for Jack, whatever. One word followed by the two words for Jack. It will go into a special folder and it will get enhanced screening and it will separate it from my spam and it will make it more likely that I will get to your email. All right, with that being said, before we get into your emails today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, BackyardFoodProduction.com. You know, what you learn there is exactly what it says, Backyard Food Production, how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, how to produce vegetables, how to produce carbohydrate crops, how to produce protein, how to manage animals in conjunction with your agriculture. You name it, you learn it there. And the systems that you'll see from Marjorie Wildcraft and BackyardFoodProduction.com com could be applied on a large acreage or it could be applied on a you know quarter acre suburban lot it's all up to you how do you scale it up or down you're going to hear me take a question today on fire ants the way i found out about the product that i'm going to give you for that answer was from the backyard food production dvd called growing your groceries check them out today BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, man, have you seen how many people are buying guns right now, guns and ammo? People are really up at arms, and they're really working hard to defend their rights uh, from the standpoint of the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution. You know what goes along with the right of keeping and bearing arms? The ability to use them effectively. I think a lot of people go out there, they take a basic handgun course, probably the one they make you take in your state if they have that in your state so that you can get a concealed carry permit, which basically means you know when and when not to draw your weapon and you can shoot it at seven yards. Uh, you shoot maybe half a box of ammo at that course, you get yourself a holster, you start carrying that gun and you feel like you're ready for whatever comes your way. The reality is you're not. You're not ready for whatever comes your way at that point. You're more prepared than you were before you went down that path. But the reality is the the mind of the average person when faced with a lethal situation will have to take a couple seconds to know what to do with itself. 
The way you overcome that is with training. So by the time your mind catches up, your body's already in action. Those one to two seconds can be the difference between life and death for you or someone that you might be defending. The only way that happens is with effective training. So check out Fortress Defense Consultants for training just like that. Remember, even though they are uh, right up by the Indiana-Illinois border, if you don't want to travel there, You put together a group of people, and they will come do training for you at your location. They'll even customize that training to any type of thing that you want to do. Those of you with remote retreats, they'll even come out to your retreat and show you how to enhance security at your retreat. You name it, if it comes down to defense and healing, they do it. Yes, healing. Yes. Did you hear that? First aid courses as well. You're going to carry around a lethal instrument. Then any place there's a conflict, there's going to be a gun. That means somebody could end up hurt. Uh, and it's not just about putting bad guys down. You could end up in a situation where innocents are hurt until you get to respond. Someone's got to look after them until medical responders get there. That person might be you. If you're going to heal, if you're going to hurt, you should learn how to heal. You can do both at Fortress Defense Consultants. I also want to remind you guys about TSP Mint and TSP Gear. Check those out today where you can get great survival podcast gear and silver at some of the best pricing available on the internet at tspmint.com. Check out 13 Skills. If you haven't joined us yet in the 13 for 13 Challenge, please do so. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You'll help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode, and the discounts there will pay for your membership many times over. Those of you serving our nation at home or abroad as uh, law enforcement officers, military personnel, First responders like paramedics or those that have served in the Peace Corps, again, prior service or active duty, you qualify for a, what I call the service discount. Just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, and I will email you a discount code. Please do this before you join, not after. If you do it after you join, you'll be waiting to your renewal, and then we can set you up. Get in touch with me, those that are existing members that want the discount. Get in touch with me a week or two before your renewal date, and we will square you away with that. With that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the uh, the first email uh, for today's show. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, start out with the email that I mentioned uh, about fire ants. Uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting one, and it's really got an easy answer. So welcome back to Texas. My question is, is there a green or minimally toxic method for controlling fire ants? I live north of Houston, and with all the rain we've gotten in the last week, I made a patrol around my property and found around two dozen mounds with a couple of the largest ones right on the border of my garden. These things are certainly pests, but more importantly, a couple of large mounds killed off some of my garden last year, and a couple tried to get in the house through weep holes in the brick. I've used commercial insecticides like Amdro to control them last year, but I'm trying to avoid putting any unnecessary poisons in the ground around my garden. Uh, any advice you might be willing to give, and thanks for a great show, Greg in Texas. I'd like to tell you guys about a method that I saw used at one time in the past that works really, really well, and then I'm going to tell you what I do because I don't know anybody that does that method. I'm not sure what equipment it was. But there was a guy that I met one time when I used to do construction work. He was like the fireman illumination man. He did it completely and totally organically because, let's put it this way, steam is water and water is organic. So he had this apparatus that basically pumped steam into the ground. So he would take this probe and he would put it in right into the fire ant mound and he would pump steam into the ground and bring the temperature of the entire 
ant mound up to the temperature of steam, or about 212 degrees. Do you know what happens to ants, ant larvae, and ant queens at 212 degrees? They're dead. Now, this sounds like a great method, but I don't know what kind of... This was so long ago, and it was back in the days when I was working 14-hour days, and it was like, oh, that's neat, and on with continuing to put fiber optic cable into the ground with a horizontal drill. And I didn't have time to really investigate, and I wasn't into this walk in my life, so it wasn't like I was highly interested. I just thought, oh, that's cool, and I figured it was everywhere. I've never seen it again. I I don't know who this guy was. He was in the western part of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, I've never seen anything about it. I've looked it up. I haven't found anything on it. If you know anything about that method, let me know. Now, for the rest of us, um, what I'm going to recommend is a product called Antifuego. And it basically anti-fire. And uh, it is used topically, so right around and on the mounds, uh, mixed with water. It's primarily composed of orange oil molasses. And, and that's about it. And, uh, it works really, really good. Uh, in the backyard food production DVD, instead of buying it, uh, Marjorie Wildcraft gives you the instructions for making it yourself and you can save a bit of money. But frankly, it's, it's, it's not really that inspective. Uh, in, in expective, in expensive. So it's probably if you have a, a smaller property, a, a few acres or less, just worth going ahead and buying it. Um, it's pretty simple. You mix four to six ounces of this stuff per gallon of water, and uh, it's ready to go. You drench the uh, affected area and the, like the area directly around it, and it pretty much does what it promises. It wipes them out. Um, it's again, it's orange oil and molasses. It's it's about as organic as it gets. It's not something that's going like when you treat a mound uh, over in your your southwest part of your lawn. It's not going to do anything for the mound that's in the northeast corner of your lawn. You're going to have to go over there and treat topically. But I like it that way because it's not broad spectrum. And that way I'm controlling where it's being used. Um, even with the oil, the orange oil, I haven't really seen it have much of an adverse effect on um, vegetation around the site you're treating. Generally speaking, it comes back pretty quick. Uh, it may brown the grass just a little bit here and there because the oils will do that to any any kind of oil. If you start dumping any oil on plants, it, it will kill them and and suppress them. It is you know uh, mixed in water, so it's not as as direct. But I, again, I've seen a little bit of yellowing, browning of vegetation in treated areas. But again, it comes back pretty quick. Let me tell you my thoughts on fire ants. I've never had a problem with them destroying anything in my garden. My problem is the evil little suckers will build a mound in the garden bed uh, where you've got some thick stuff and you don't see it, and then you, you you squat down or get down on one knee and you're picking jalapenos with your right hand so you lean on your left hand so that you can support yourself as you lean back in to get that one really big fat red one in the back, and then all of a sudden... Uh, you feel this uh, intense pain in your right, your left hand, and you look down, there's about four million of them on your hand, and the suckers seem smart enough that none of them bite until like they're all in place and they give the bite command and they bite the heck out of you. Um, it's annoying for me, uh, it, that's about all. 
but I don't like them. My wife's some like half allergic, I guess is the way to put it, to ants and bees and things like that. She doesn't have a huge reaction, but she has enough of a reaction that it's uncomfortable. And you always worry about people like that through excessive exposure, developing more and more severe reactions over time. So we really don't like having them around. Uh, mainly, again, because of the unseen ones. The ones with a mound... You know, that's not that big a deal to me. I mean, I can see it. I know not to put my hand in it. I know not to step in it. It's the low mounds in high grass or in vegetated areas when you don't know they're there that seem to cause you the most grief. But uh, I've had really good results with the Antifuego. Uh, I'll put a link to where you can buy it on Amazon today, but it doesn't really matter where you buy it. Uh, it's the same stuff just about everywhere. So next up, I, I keep saying that sooner or later we're going to see... All of the modern world's country, all the modern world's countries go back to a gold and probably a bimetallic standard. A gold standard backing the primary currency with silver being used as a fractionalizer for smaller transaction and, and, and filling in the role that silver's filled for centuries of being the common man's currency, the middle, the currency of the middle class, silver, the currency of the rich, gold. And I keep saying it's going to happen, and people keep saying the U.S. will never allow it to happen. And I think the problem is the U.S. doesn't get to decide this. And I think the American population has been so dumbed down to believe that America can just do anything it wants and get away with it that they don't really understand the dynamics at play. Let me read an article for you today on uh, Zero Hedge. Russia flips petrodollar on its head by exporting crude and buying gold, record gold. Uh, China has been a very active purchaser of gold for its reserves in the last few years, as we've extensively covered here. But another nation has taken over as the biggest buyer role for the same reasons as China. Central banks around the world have printed money to escape global financial crisis, as Bloomberg reports. IMF data shows Russia added 570 metric tons in the past decade. Uh, folks, I mean, do, do you get how much gold that is? There's about 2,204 pounds to a metric ton, which means that over the past decade, the Russians have set aside 1.2 million pounds of it. It's not all their gold. That's additional gold put up in the last 10 years. That, folks, is over 20 million ounces, which when you do the math at 1650 an ounce is 33 billion dollars of additional gold reserves put away in the last 10 years and they're continuing to do more and remember that is added to the gold that they were already holding it wasn't like they weren't holding a lot uh, i just want to put it into perspective again while people are telling you things like there's no reason to hold it. so you got what's his name uh, warren buffett saying why would i want gold it just sits there it doesn't make a dividend i can't eat it it doesn't do anything for me Central banks are buying gold, the Chinese are buying gold, and over 10 years, Russia buys $33 billion worth of gold. And do you know when they started buying it? There's a, there's a graph in this article, and it shows that Russia began buying gold right at the bottom of the recession caused by their default. Remember, Russia defaulted on its debt in, in the late 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the value of uh, everything they were doing declined, and it hit this 
bottom. There was another little bottom a few years later, but basically there's this upswing in the Russian economy that commences with Vladimir Putin saying, you know what, we're going to buy gold. Here's the key, though. you got to look at how this is being done. So what Russia is doing here, and this is why they're saying it flips the petrodollar on its head, is they're saying, we'll pump the oil, we'll sell the oil, we're going to convert the profits to gold, we're going to set it aside and keep selling people as much oil as we can sell. So the Russians are running their economy mostly on oil right now, but what they're doing with the profits is holding gold. Remember, Russia is still a communist country. It's it's opened up a lot since uh, the, the fall of the Soviet Union. It's far less of an oppressive communist nation than it was at the time. It's much closer to, honestly, the tyranny of socialism that we have here in America. With a bit of a difference. The Russian banking system is the Russian banking system. It is not independent the way that the Federal Reserve is. The same with the Chinese. When the Russians and the Chinese are buying gold, the nations themselves are holding gold. When the Federal Reserve buys gold, the banks of our nation are holding gold. It's a very, very different thing because, frankly, Chase doesn't care where it makes a profit, folks. J.P. Morgan don't care where they make a profit. Uh, none of these people care where they make a profit. They just care that they make a profit. So they'll go wherever it is best for them when the economy falls apart with their gold and, and we'll have whatever is or is not in Fort Knox. And this is why we need to be prepared for this. Now let's talk about what I keep saying. When, when people say, well, the U.S. says we will not go back to a gold standard, Ben Bernanke says that and whatever, let me ask you what happens. If the Chinese and the Russians are doing this in cahoots with each other, they're like, you know what? Because let me read a little bit more of the, uh, the, the article to you so you can understand the Russian explanation as to why the Russians are doing this. Um, it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's pretty telling. Here's, here's their explanation. Um, the U.S. is endangering the global economy by abuse, abusing its dollar monopoly. That's a quote. Uh, are clearly being taken seriously. The world's largest oil producer turns black gold into hard assets. A lawmaker in Putin's party noted, quote, the more gold a country has, the more sovereignty it will have if there's a cataclysm with the dollar the euro, the pound, or any other reserve currency, end quote. So here's what they're saying. If if the nations of the world are holding dollars, euros, yen, won, any paper currency, and there's a paper currency implosion, and if one, if the dollar goes, they're all going. If the euro goes completely, they may all go, because if the euro drags the dollar, then they all go, because the dollar's the world's reserve currency. And in that scenario, all the countries of the world will be told, it's a crisis, we have to come together and solve it. If you're sitting on a bunch of gold, you get to make your own decisions. If you're not as a nation, the nations that are will get to make decisions for you. Got it? Okay? That's what, that's what Putin and his party are saying. And I certainly am not campaigning for Vladimir Putin here, but I'll tell you on this, they're not wrong. So what happens if Russia and China say, you know what, guys, we're 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 doing okay here. We we kind of get along, you know, we get along better than we get along with those American guys anyway, and uh, we have lots and lots of gold. Let's just keep buying it, and one day we'll just decide that we're going to back our currencies with gold. 
We, we won't fight the dollar directly. We won't do anything except say that um, we're going to take Russian currency and Chinese currency and say they are fixed in relationship to ounces of gold at a ratio of what? It doesn't even matter what it is. I want you to understand that. It doesn't matter if Russia's currency or Chinese currency remains weak against the dollar or becomes strong against the dollar in a fixed exchange ratio. That's not what's important. The fact that you'll know that if I go buy Russian rubles and it's fixed at a ratio of, I don't know, 10,000 to an ounce, that holding those rubles is as good as holding an ounce of gold, There's going to be a lot of international motivation to move to banking in Russia and banking in China, which is already happening. This would set it on fire. About the only people in the world that aren't able to do that are U.S. citizens because of all the crap that our country does to make sure you don't have any financial freedom and that you can't bank overseas. I've said this before, but to drive the point home, there is an account you can get in Australia. If you are a citizen of any country other than this country, they will let you open up an account. You will send them money, they will convert it to gold, they will hold it in a vault. They'll give you a credit card. You go out and have dinner, it's a hundred bucks. You throw the credit card down, throw a twenty dollar tip on it, hundred and twenty bucks. Hundred and twenty bucks of your gold reserves are discharged into cash, paid through just like an automatic visa card. Any citizen on planet Earth except the United Citizen can open up that account tomorrow morning, but not you. So what will the rest of the world do with their reserves of capital? If all of a sudden the Russian currency, the Chinese currency, and God forbid India and Brazil get on this as part of the BRIC alliance, all say all our currencies are backed by gold at a fixed ratio. So not only are you holding cash, not only is it immediately exchangeable into any other currency through Forex, but the cash you're holding is backed by gold. So now you're holding cash and gold at the same time. You're getting the backing of a nation plus the backing of the gold behind the currency. Why, I'll tell you what would happen. Billions and trillions of dollars that are not directly invested would flood into those currencies. The other thing that would happen is people would take a much more serious look at investing in stocks in Russia and China. Here's the other thing that your financial liar won't tell you and the TV won't tell you. When you're invested in Exxon, for instance, a U.S. company on the U.S. exchange, you're also invested in dollars. That's why your stock is priced in dollars. So no matter what the Exxon stock price is, in the end, its actual value is relative to the dollar. So if the dollar takes a crap, and your Exxon stock somehow manages to maintain or not fall that much, you still don't have anything. It's really no different than holding cash because it's still denominated in dollars. Now, what if the Russian currency or the Chinese currency was backed in gold? So when you invested in a Russian or a Chinese company, not only were you holding a share or group of shares in that company and profiting from the expansion, growth, and development of that company, but in the underlying asset quotient, you were holding gold. See, this is how the gold standard worked in America. When you invested in a company in America before we left the gold standard, your investment was in gold because $20 was an ounce. Got it? 
That's not the case anymore. So if some of the largest countries, most expanding economies in the world move to gold to back their currencies, everybody else has to go with them or you lose. We drug the, 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 the world off of the standard. These nations know they can benefit from dragging the world back onto the standard and they're preparing for the day that it gets done. And when it gets done, when it gets done, the value of the dollar will crumble. It will crumble unless the U.S. pulls a big hairy out of their hat and leads the way into it. Either way, if the only thing you're holding is assets, I don't care if they're stocks, I don't care if they're bonds, I don't care what they are, Either if you're holding them denominated in dollars, I promise you, when they create the ratio in the new exchange rate, it will benefit them and not us. How do I know that? Because it always has. The person who writes the rules of any game always writes them to their own advantage. Guess what? You're not writing the rules. So whether we're led there by China and Russia and maybe some other nations, or the U.S. tries to head it off and does it on their own, either way, we all get screwed unless you're holding tangible assets of your own. And honestly, I think that we are so brain dead in this country that we will let them go there without following them for long enough for their gambit to play off. Because it will bring tons of investment into whichever countries do it first. And I want you to think about this. You can say it won't, but I want you to think about this for yourself. If there was a company... That when you invested in their stocks and their fundamentals were good, they were a good investment that you would have otherwise. And there was a company just like them, fundamentally, right? Not the same widget or gadget or whatever. When you looked at the two as an investor, you just simply said, you know what, I'm comfortable buying uh, 10,000 shares in either one of these companies. And they're priced about the same. They have similar dividend positions, et cetera, agnosium. But one company said, by the way, our shares are denominated in gold. And the other company said, our shares are denominated in fiat currency. But everything else was equal. Which one would you invest in? So if China and Russia move to a gold standard, they're asking that same question to all large institutional investors throughout the world. Think about how you'd answer it. And think about how they'd answer it. And think about what it means for our future. This is why I think it's important that we have some of our money protected by precious metals. Because the rest of the world sooner or later is going to go there, and we're going to go along kicking and screaming if that's what it takes. Anyway, I will uh, publish a link to the article in today's show notes so you can check it out yourself on Zero Hedge. So the next one I have is uh, from, let's see, Elias. And Elias sent me this uh, article on the Oath Keepers website about the revitalization, revitalization of the state militias. And I've, I've been wanting to talk more about this since I uh, did my video where I talked about, you know, it's making militia service compulsory. Uh, and I was only half serious about that because I, I really don't think it should be, but uh, it used to be, and I'll get into that here in just a second. But my point was if uh, if uh, everybody was a member of the militia, then when the gun grabber said, well, it's only for the militia, then everybody would be in the militia, and you could just shut up and go away and leave us alone and leave us have our guns then, and the gun grabbers would have to serve too, which might be fun to watch them fumble around. Anyway, I actually think that a compulsory militia is a terrible idea in this country, in its state today, and I'll tell you why in a bit. I want to actually read some of this article for you, and then I'll get into my thoughts on how we can revitalize the militia. 
And what I like about um, what's being suggested here by this author and, and what I don't like. Um, on April 19, 1775, the battles of Lexington and Concord on the outskirts of Boston ignited a conflict that led to the most monumentous political event of man's history, the Declaration of Independence and the Birth of America. In the early morning hours that day, a command of British troops was dispatched from Boston to search out and confiscate stores of militia weapons and supplies at Concord. On the way, they confronted a small, unimposing band of uh, armed American militia at Lexington. The British mayor, John Proclaim, shouted out, Ye villains, ye rebels, disperse, d damn you, disperse, lay down your arms. The American militia were under the command of John Parker, and their orders were to remain non-antagonistic to the British. They were outnumbered by almost ten to one, so why didn't they lay down their arms in order to do so? Because, says constitutional scholar Edwin Vierna, free men with a duty to keep and bear arms never willingly lay down their arms, and at Lexington none of them did. The heroic militia captain John Parker warned his men, quote, if they mean to have a war, let it begin here, end quote, and begin it did. Let me say something about that, because I think this is something people don't get. The, um, the first battle... In the American Revolution, the first, the very first battle, the battle they teach you about in history class and they make you memorize the dates and they make you memorize the name of things, right? That battle, the very battle that led to the independence of our nation was fought because the British were going to seize the arms of the militia. You want to know why the Second Amendment is the most important debate in our history? It's what our nation was founded on, for God's sakes. Do you get that? They were going to take the arms, and the militia said, Mulana Bay, baby, you ain't doing it here. If you want it, come and take it, and we'll take it back. Let me continue with the article. The importance of state militias. With his newest book, The Sword and Sovereignty, Edwin Vierna Jr. has given us a magisterial work that meticulously documents the history of early America's militias and why similar units must be revitalized today if we're to adequately confront our distinction as a society and restore the republic that our founders gave us. It is a book that will profoundly shock 98% of Americans. It is so overpowering in its legal logic and constitutional veracity that the intellectuality of Cicero and Plutarch come to mind as one reads the prose. It is not a book that can be read lightly. It demands a tolerance for legal thought and abstract conceptualization. But for those men of mind who understand the importance of ideas in the unfolding of history, the effort will be most rewarding. You will be shown an entirely new way of seeing things regarding guns, militia, the Second Amendment, homeland security, how they intertwine, and how they have been grossly misrepresented by grizzling pseudo-experts of the establishment. For the first 125 years of our history, the militia of several states was highly honored institution and played a vital role in preserving the concept of federalism among which our system of freedom depends. This ended with the Militia Act of 1903, which shifted the militia of the several states into National Guard units under the auspices of the national military. State and local control was eliminated. In a 
addition, Vieira tells us over the past centuries of decades of disguise, misuse, and abuse have so thoroughly muddled the meaning of militia in contemporary American political discourse, the word is hardly ever encountered except as invictive, usually well, well frighted with the I can't read that word, adjectives such as extremist or violent, broadcast by the enemies of our constitutional government and their dupes and their useful idiots. For the purpose of intimidating and to silence the people they intend to oppose as soon as the vast majority of Americans has been thoroughly disarmed through one form of gun control or another. Anybody today with a modicum of brains can see that our nation is being transformed into a first-class police state. Homeland Security and Washington's outrageous Patriot Acts are Alice in Wonderland institutions that have taken us a giant step down the path to Orwell's nightmare. Our military-industrial complex grows exponentially. The federal government has become a Godzilla of ugliness and menace. Our congressmen are Machiavellian schemers, wallowing in our sophisticated mazes and, a tre and treason to truth. This is good stuff, guys. Vierna's answer to this pernicious evolution is startling. As with all big thinkers in history, he asks us, like Steve Jobs did uh, to his comrades at Apple, to think different. He maintains that America cannot be saved unless she revitalizes her original concept of a militia of several states. The sword and sovereignty explains in 1940, in 1945 pages of text and 305 pages of appendix tables and notes why this must be done and how to constitutionally do it. Magisterial scholarship is putting it mildly. You can read the rest of this article if you want to. Um, But basically, this is what what the the concept is. A militia should be reestablished and chartered under the individual states. So there should be a, a, a Texas state militia, an Alabama state militia, a Florida state militia, a Pennsylvania state militia. Every state should have its own militia. I like the general idea. Um, what I don't like, though, is how quickly those state militias get turned into... Uh, it, where they do exist into something akin to a free version of the National Guard. Uh, which is, and when I say free, I don't mean like independent, but I mean you work for free. You don't get paid, but you have the constraints that you would in the National Guard and somebody decides who gets promoted, who gets demoted. See, a, a real militia would work this way. Free men who work together in that militia then decide who runs their own militia. And officers and NCOs are actually elected by the men that serve underneath them. To me, this is the way to run a militia. So if you want me to take orders from a captain, then that captain should be somebody that all the men of that captain's company have decided this is the best officer that we have to lead us. Um, and that takes the concept of a republic and expands it and fragments it into the militia. So I hear all the time when I talk about a militia, for instance, about the Texas State Guard. And I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong about this, but I just feel like the State Guard of, of Texas is uh, run almost like, a again, a, uh, a, a non-paid branch of the Texas National Guard. And it has as much control granted over to the state of Texas, as does the National Guard. Now, it, there's no doubt that it definitely has some independence from federal intrusion, but I don't know. Something about it just doesn't sit right with me. And for those that may be members, let me say, 
that I could be completely wrong about this. And maybe um, now that I'm settled back in, this is maybe something that I might want to look deeper into myself. But to me, a true militia is a local-run group. And that group may, under time of need, band together with other local groups and say, we're now defending our state or a area of our state or serving an area of our state, for instance, in disaster relief or something like that, or in true necessary physical defense thereof. So I don't know. I guess here's my thing. The federal government has used a monopoly on the control of force to do many of the things that they constitutionally simply do not have the authority to do. Plain and simple. And I don't trust them with that much of a power and that much of a monopoly on force. I don't, therefore, trust the individual states, such as the state of Texas, much more with a monopoly on force. So... If you ask me how do we revitalize the militias, I'd say it has to be done probably at a county level. And Stuart Rhodes has talked about this quite a bit. And I've reached out to him, and I don't know if he's not getting my emails or what, but I haven't heard back from him much lately. I'd actually like to get him on the show specifically to talk about, not in general terms, but in nuts and bolts, what what ways could people out there begin this revitalization, revitalization process. What, what Stuart has suggested is that the militia of a county should work in conjunction with a board that would be made up of the fire chief, the police chief, and the county sheriff. That's something that is far more accessible to the individual citizens and I'm far more comfortable with. So my real answer to this question is I don't know. And maybe it is a solution with everybody having an organization like the Texas State Guard. I just don't think you're going to get enough participation that way. Right, I really don't. I think for a militia to work. And what he goes on to say in this article is that at the time of the foundation of the Republic, service in the militia was compulsory. In other words, if you were a male 17 to like 60 or something like that, and you were in decent shape, you were expected to be called up. and You could be conscripted at any time into service to defend your, your, your home state, which was basically your country. Because the individual colonies thought of themselves more like their own little countries in this collective. You see, I think this is another thing that we've lost, is an understanding of the historical context of the Republic. People that were from Georgia in the, you know, the early days of the Republic, I'm talking after the Revolutionary War, didn't just see themselves as being, you know, in a different state. They literally saw themselves as Georgians. Like that was, Georgia was their their country, and their country collectively was part of a republic. And within that republic, one could move to another country, another state, and they meant it the way we call the U.S. a state, a nation state. It was a loose, feudal, uh, federal involvement in a larger group, so that the state of Georgia, the state of South Carolina, the state of Virginia had stronger protections in the global scheme of things by being united together in an alliance under a federal institution with very limited powers to that federal government. And you, I mean, at the, I mean, what do you think about this? 
One of the things that happened, for instance, if you read about the, the life and times of Wyatt Earp, and we're not going back to the foundation of Republic, we're going back to the 1800s here, is that he was actually at one time wanted in Arkansas for horse stealing. And at the time, you know what you got for horse stealing? You got a rope around your neck and you got hung. His dad got him out of jail and he left Arkansas and he never went back. Okay? If he had gone back to Arkansas, he could have been, he wasn't even, nobody went after him. That's, it was like going to another country in some ways. Now, could it have happened? Yes, but as a matter of course, people actually got away with certain crimes if they weren't considered a federal crime, and the list was very short of those at the time, right, by simply going to another state. Now, could a governor dispatch basically a bounty hunter? Absolutely, but how often did it happen? And the answer is not that often. So that's that's one way to look at this that I think that, that people don't really understand today. Now, I, I know what some of you are thinking when I tell you that story about um, Wyatt Earp, that it was just from a movie and it didn't really happen. Well, the reality is that he posted a $500 bond. Uh, a jury returned indictments against himself and another individual in, in May. Um, and in June of that year, a trial date was set for November 13th, where he was to stand trial. And it would have occurred in Fort Smith, but... Mr. Herb took that opportunity to jump bail, disappeared, and never faced charges in court. And he did that primarily by getting the hell out of Arkansas. So it, this is the reality that even in the mid-1800s, late-1800s, that the country still saw itself that way, that the states were a lot more sovereign than they are today. And to really understand the concept of, of reestablishing a militia, especially a state's militia, then we need to understand that context. And I just don't know that I'm the guy that's just not enough switched on about it to tell the country how it should run its militia systems. But I do, I would say this. There is nothing illegal about a group of citizens in any given place deciding we're going to form a militia, setting up and running their militia their way as private citizens. And that is probably the best place for us to start. Because I think that the whole concept of a republic is that when ideas compete with each other, we find the best ideas. So if, if that is something that you're interested in, I'd say take the initiative and start putting something together and... I think we need, and I think that the gentleman that wrote the book, not the guy that wrote the article about it, but the guy that wrote the book himself, Vieira, um, it basically says that uh, compulsory militia would not work today, that it would have to be a voluntary service, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. Anyway, it's a unique uh, subject, and it's an interesting thing to ponder. And I think part of the reason, though, is if, if states are going to start standing up to the federal government, They have to have some sovereignty with which to do so. And I think that we need to keep in mind the entire purpose of an armed society is so that the citizens of that society do not serve at the boot of the soldier or they do not serve at the boot of the tyrant that controls the soldier. And that's true at the individual level. Well, if the state is going to enact that sovereignty from the federal government, they too must have a force capable of standing up against Uh, the federal government. And it doesn't have to be like people say, well, it's not going to work because they'll just bring the M1 Abrams tanks in and all. It's like the states don't have them themselves. But as states develop this sovereignty 
and you have a federal government weakening from its own stupidity with $16 trillion worth of debt. And by the way, do you know that Nancy Pelosi came out today and said, what spending problem? We don't have a, there's, there is no spending problem. So those two dynamics at play with states putting their fiscal houses in order where and whereas they can and ramping up their ability to defend their own borders may result in, a, in the, the possibility for an opportunity to really restore the republic to what it's supposed to be. Notice I'm not a huge optimist at that. I, I think that most of the states are hell-bent on their own destruction just as much so as the federal government. And this is why when I say I have a problem with things like Texas State Guard, that's my problem. By the state itself being in control, these militias then are subject to the same uh, apparatus that's destroying everything in the first place. That it's time for the private citizen to stand up and say, you know what, we're not talking about overthrow, we're not talking about secession, we're not talking about any of that crap. What we're saying is we know that you idiots have us on a path toward destruction, and should that day come, we will be able to stand and defend our homes. We will be able to stand and defend our fe- ourselves. We will be able to stand and, and defend our f- federal citizen, our, our, our fellow citizens. We will not allow our neighborhoods to devolve into the type of thing that went on in Croatia. We won't allow it. Not on our watch. The end. Done. Over. Out. And that is more of, well... If you, the people in power tell you that's never going to happen, then they have nothing to worry about, do they? Then the militia's just there like a in case, right? It's break glass in case of disaster. And, and that's what I see we need to be setting up today because there, there is no need to worry about standing up to the federal government in reality because the federal government is doing a perfect job of destroying itself. Um, we're going to suffer, though, if we're not ready to defend ourselves when it happens. And I think that's the biggest reason to bring back local militias. But, again, I don't profess to be an expert or know how to actually solve this particular issue. And I'm hoping to get Rhodes back on for his thoughts on it. Okay, totally different, totally interesting one. Hi, Jack, I have a problem. My aunt, who is really glad I'm trying to be prepared for what she calls hard time, showed up at my house last week with two 25-pound bags of cornmeal. She said that since she would have to come and live with me if things got too bad for her, she might as well contribute something while she could, while times were good, she said. First off, it felt really good to get some positive feedback from someone, but now I was horrified at the thought of eating that much cornbread, which is about the only thing me and her, either uh, one of us, know how to make with cornmeal. I'm really hoping for some feedback from you or maybe Keith Snow. What do we do with 50 pounds of cornmeal? Any suggestions on creative cooking ideas that utilize cornmeal? Love the work you do. Keep up the good work. Okay, um, let's let's start with first of all. Okay, 50 pounds of cornmeal is not that much, right? So... That's something that you might want to break down into smaller pieces and seal up, vacuum seal it uh, in mylar, vacuum seal it in vacuum sealed bags, put it in some fire, like break it up and put it away so it lasts. And it'll last a long damn time in a dark, relatively cool, oxygen-free environment. So get it broken up, first of all. Uh, second of all, okay, so she's on board with prepping. She wants to contribute. Say, Aunt. Uh, whatever your name is. I don't know what her first name is, so Aunt, whatever. Um, glad that you're, you're on board with this. If you think 50 pounds cornmeal is going to keep us for a long time, it won't. Um, it'll keep us for maybe a couple weeks, and we'll be in pretty bad shape after that. So we need to continue to do things together. If you're planning on coming here, you're right. You have an obligation if your plan is to come here to put some stuff up. So let's get some other stuff and stop buying the same stuff. All right, so that's, that puts diversity into it right away. But there's a lot of things you can do with cornmeal. 
Um, good, you're from uh, West Virginia, and your your signature line, Keith, and to me, you should know about hush puppies. I guess maybe that's a further southern thing than West Virginia, but hush puppies are something to look up. And jalapeno hush puppies, I mean, I'm, I don't eat a lot of those because that type of thing is what made me really fat at one time. But um, talk about a high-energy food. Uh, at a time when food is scarce, it, it's a, it's a great thing. You mix up your batter, and if you want to put jalapenos in it, you do it, and you you use a spoon and you drop lumps of it into oil. Um, one of my favorite ways to make them is with uh, deer tallow. If you have rendered deer tallow and you fry hush puppies in them, oh my god, that's great. Um, you can do uh, a lot of different things than just cornbread, though. I guess is the point. Um, if you have a supply of fish, uh, a 50% cornmeal, 50% white flour mix is a great batter that stays nice and light and crispy with fish, especially if you do it in smaller portions. I'm having to go back into the mental archives here since I don't use stuff like this as much anymore. Um, another great use for uh, cornmeal is making polenta. And that has a kind of an entirely different uh, look and feel and taste to it than something like cornbread. And you can easily just look up a polenta uh, recipe for cornmeal. P-O-L-E-N-T-A is how you spell polenta if you've never heard of it before. You can make grits out of cornmeal. Grits is basically cornmeal. Um, a little bit of milk, water, some salt, uh, some cornmeal. And uh, if you do it up with cheddar, it actually becomes pretty good eating, especially alongside eggs for breakfast. Um, you can do basically a corn a cornmeal grits and mix that with cheese and ground beef, and that's pretty dadgone good stuff too. I mean, it, it's all about just getting a little bit creative and understanding that you know if you think about it, most most things out there today have corn in them, and that's because it is so versatile. I don't think it's the best thing in the world for you to be using in, in general, but it, it has a lot of utility. Again, I can't overemphasize the value that it has, though, for making food that's not so good taste good by frying it. Um, when you deep fry things, that which is okay becomes awesome. Um, look at something like, and you can also kind of up the caloric intake, get some fat mixed into it, and take something that's got some uh, minerals and nutrients in it and make it not so healthy. But again, if you're in a survival mode where you're just trying to make sure you have enough caloric intake in a, in a, in a tough time, you can grow as much zucchini as you want. The problem is if you sit around eating zucchini every day, you'll starve to death in time. There's only there's very little caloric intake there, and it's kind of bland. You take zucchini, you roll it in cornmeal, you fry it in oil, it tastes a lot better. Now you're bringing in the calories from the corn. So you can do a lot with it. I, I think the big key, though, is going to be to to start adding some more diversity to what you're what you're what you're storing there. And uh, that's a nice token initial, let's say, investment in food security by your aunt. But I think part of what you have to have is a frank discussion that, you know, if we're really planning on this, if we're really planning on this being a team effort, then we need to continue. And, and we've, we've locked up cornmeal for a while. It is a good opportunity, though, for me to bring up the vacuum canner, which I did a video on last week. New product uh, called VacuCanner at VacuCanner.com uh, was sent to me for review. Very impressed with it. It's basically a modified pressure cooker with an AC vacuum pump, like a vacuum pump used for air conditioner. Pulls the vacuum down to 29 HG. You put some uh, mason jars in it with loose uh, collars on the lids, and when you release the vacuum, the jars seal really, really tight. 
Um, Dorothy and I decided, you know what? We need to put some more dry goods up. We have this canner. Let's get on it this weekend. We put, I don't even know. We haven't done the inventory yet on it, but we put up at least, I'd say, six um, full new boxes worth of quart jars, at least four or five flat boxes of pint jars of various things, and a couple jars of the little half pint, like jelly-sized jars. We did some creative stuff, too. We put up some comfort food. We did some M&Ms in the jelly jars. And we're planning on like tasting them over time and seeing how well you can really preserve something like an M&M. I think probably almost indefinitely in that level of a vacuum. I, I got a big giant jug of smoked almonds. We put those up. And even though we're paleo, we put up some things that are non-paleo. Um, we got a 10-pound sack of Krustoff um, pancake mix at Sam's, or not Sam's Club, uh, Costco, because we're back here now. We can go to Costco again. I prefer Costco. And I think I got that for six bucks, and I made like seven quart jars of it. And the reason I bring that up is because I was asked on the video uh, in response to it, can you put things like flour and sugar and salt in there without like basically turning it on and sucking it all out of the jar? And my thought was you should be able to, but I don't know. So when I filled, the, and it was like the only messy thing that we had to fill jars with. So I filled the first quart jar with the pancake mix, and I put the lid ring on and I back it off a quarter turn and I hook up the pump and I just stick it in the pot all by itself and I have this nightmare that when I open it it's going to be coated on the inside with flour. Nope, worked perfectly. So those that wanted to know about that, it worked perfectly and I tell you if you're going to be sealing up uh, three or four jars of stuff a week the, the attachment for your food saver or whatever, and I just have a really hard time with uh, recommending anybody buy a food saver because I killed two of them in four months. And that's just not reliable enough. It's just not dependable enough for me. I'm sorry. It really isn't. And uh, this product, I think, would work forever. I think that, if anything, you would replace the vacuum pump. Uh, and those cost about 90 bucks. So the, the, the pressure cooker portion of it uh, is damn near indestructible. And it's, it's a speed-based product. I would say we put up all of the stuff I mentioned in about, this is prep and processing time, about two hours, two and a half hours. And we were having fun. We were not trying to do it as quick as we could. We were having a little bit of wine, you know, talking to each other, kind of using it as a relaxation period with all the work we've been doing with the move. And Dorothy took some pictures. She's going to be putting them up on the uh, 13 Skills blog. Uh, we got some new shelving. We, we roped off, not roped off, but just figuratively, uh, an area upstairs in one of the rooms that I'm basically going to use as a gun room, and I gave up some space in there. And it's not even really a room. It's a closet that's kind of a hidden big closet. And I uh, gave us some space and put some shelves in there, and we put it all on it. We have plenty of space left. And we're going to continue to build that out. We've even done some things like some, you know, Muselix-type stuff and all because – even, and this is, I keep getting questions from you guys that are, that are well, on board with the paleo lifestyle saying, how do you do food storage if you're paleo? And the answer is, meat can be canned, meat can be smoked, meat can be pickled, meat can be cured, meat can be frozen, meat can be fermented. I don't really know of any good dishes, but I know it can be done. Uh, meat can be made into biltong. Uh, and so all that works. So vegetables, the same thing. Fruits, the same. There's all these different ways to preserve fruits and vegetables. But the big thing, other than the pancake mix, that we thought, you know what, just a, 
What a great thing in a hard time to be able to make a freaking pancake as a comfort food, not as something to live on, or as a barter implement. My, my wife kept saying, boy, this would be good barter. Boy, this would be good barter. I'm thinking, man, she's really started listening to me after all these years, you know. And uh, But most of what we've stored up that is of the non-traditional paleo is like in that moderation world. So brown rice. People say you can't store brown rice. I'm sorry. It's bull. It's bull. It will, it'll oxidize, not if there's no oxygen. Okay? So we have, you know, a few quarts of brown rice and things like that as well. And I think that you can take that stuff with a paleo lifestyle, use it in moderation, and have large stores of it. Because in the end, when it comes down to survival, if I'm hungry and you put a plate of uh, potatoes and rice and corn and beans in front of me, I'm not going to sit there and go, no, I don't want that. I'm going to be happy to eat it in that situation. I'm just going to try to keep it to a minimum and keep my protein uptake as well. So a little bit of a bonus in that that section there for you on uh, on paleo prepping as well. But don't overthink paleo prepping, guys. Don't make it hard because it's not. Don't make it how do I store meat because here's the reality. The entire point of paleo, right, is that mankind was living mostly on meats, nuts, fruits, and things like that for, for tens of thousands of years as part of our, our dietary evolution as a species. And it's why we do better that way that we're, you know, from generation after generation after generation predisposed genetically to do better on that diet. And that means that human beings figured out how to live on meat before they invented the refrigerator. And, and that tells you that it would be relatively easy for us to do today. Anyway, let's go ahead and take some more and get wrapped up today. Here's kind of an unrelated question, everything else that we've been talking to. Um, Charlie asks, what do I do with actively growing cover crops when I'm ready to plant? I have raised beds uh, that I've been growing cover crops on during the winter. How do I prepare those beds when I'm ready to plant? Do I mow or weed whack, or do I till them uh, as green manure into the soil? Thanks. It has a lot to do with what kind of crop it is, how old the bed is, how long it's been there, and uh, what you're planting and, and what your goals are for it. Let's look at it a couple different ways. If you're planting a cover crop through your winter that's going to summer kill, right? So if we plant something like a winter pea or something that is not going to handle the heat, one of the easiest things that we can do is we just take a, a sicket or a scythe or a sickle, right? And a sicket looks like a sickle, except it's not all the way in a big curve. It's like a half-curved sickle, right? A hand thing called a sicket. Those are my favorite thing to do this with. And we just go in there with a smaller raised bed. We could use a hand tool like that. With a larger one, we'd want to use a scythe. And we just cut it till it's only a couple inches high. And we just let it fall to the soil, and we dig open the spots to put our new plants in, and we go ahead and plant our plants in there. And we can come back and kind of in between the rows give a little scythe action as long as we can fit it in there, just a little bit of sickening around our plants until our plants establish and start to outgrow the peas. Now, as soon as the heat, now this, this pea that's not supposed to be pruned down like this, as soon as the heat hits, it's just going to give up. And it's just going to go to the ground, and and we're done. And we haven't had to till, we haven't had to mess around, we haven't had to do anything like that. If we're growing something that's going to actively grow into our summer months, and it's you know a conversion to some from summer. So let's say late spring we throw down some buckwheat, and we're just holding off. We're going to plant that bed in very early summer, but it's already warm enough that buckwheat can establish, and we got nice, big, beautiful buckwheat in there. 
we probably want to go ahead and till that as a green manure into our soil if our soil is still developing. And we don't have to, de here's the thing, we talk about no-till, so people think, oh, we can't till at all. You don't have to deep-till with that. We just basically chop it down with a hoe and till it into like the first inch, right? Throw a layer of mulch on top of it and then plant into that. That'll work. If you're doing that with buckwheat, you really want to cut it before it goes to seed. So when it's in flower would be when you would cut it. Uh, it, it's, it, it, so it's all dependent. The thing is to not be afraid to, to take it down. We can do other things though. You could get something like a big roller, right? A big heavy roller, like you, you, you used to roll, uh, like greens on a golf course. And you could have something growing like, let's say, a, a winter wheat crop or something like that. And before it's fully done, you take that roller and you just roll it flat and basically you bruise and break the stems. It doesn't die right away, but it's not going to make it either. And it forms basically a mulch mat, right? And we can plant under that. And then we have this big mulch mat of slowly decaying and it's like a delayed decay. Right. If we're planting seeds, we need to get a little bit more aggressive unless instead, you know, from doing transplants, unless we're doing like a, a highly vigorous seed. If you're you're doing any of the methods I just described and you carve out a little area and drop something in there like a squash or a watermelon or something like that, you're doing from seed. You're going to have no problem with that coming up. I would say even, you know, taking down something uh, like like uh, a grass crop, like wheat, like barley, what have you, scything it down, taking all of the stuff you've scythed off to the side, let it dry for a couple days, right? Maybe hit it one more time with the scythe or the sicket, depending on the size of it, uh, planting in things like beans or whatever, and then taking the dried straw, you've basically made your own straw mulch, returning that to the bed dry. That's something I, I've done with a lot of success. So the reality is that it doesn't have to be complicated, and it's only limited by your creativity and the goals that you have. What I don't recommend is getting a rotor, rotor tiller and going to town with it, uh, especially all the time. If you want to till soil once or twice to establish it and then go to no-till, I think that makes sense. If you're tilling once or twice a year, you're actually doing a lot of damage to your soil. And people say, well, but when you till, you get this great bloom in, in, in fertility. So how can it be bad? It's two ways that it's bad. The first way that it's bad is the, where does the bloom and fertility come from? Well, you have all of this life in your soil, not just this cover crop you've tilled in. You've got all these bacteria and microbes and soil organisms. And when you till the soil, you completely disturb the stratification of the soil. The soil has different, like people say, well, my pH of my soil is 7.1. Bull, the pH of your soil is all over the map. Uh, acidity and alkalinity levels will stratify. Now, there's places that are kind of a blanket one way or another, but good, healthy soil will have areas that an acid-loving plant can put its roots out into and grow right next to an alkaline-loving plant, and both of them do well five feet away from each other. And you go, how is that possible? It's a stratification. Well, when you till it, you destroy all that. And all these little micros and organisms that have this little ecosystem, this little one little grain of dirt that this colony of, of little microbes were living around, like a little world. And basically the water goes down there, and a little sphere of water, like a little world, literally a little world is formed around that one piece of soil. And then <laughs> here comes the rototiller through, and ah, they all die. 
and you're growing on their bodies. That's where the fertility is coming from, where if you leave them alive, they're constantly dying on their own, slowly building the humus layer, slowly building the fertility in a sustainable way, right? So the tilling's bad for that reason, because you destroy that stratification, you destroy that, that, that long-term momentum building of fertility in the soil, and you kill so much of the life that you're trying to encourage there with cover cropping and with being organic and things like that. So that's one thing. The other thing, though, is let's say a tiller is going to till six inches of soil. Do you know what the, the, the soil, after a couple times of tilling at seven and eight inches is like? It's compacted hard as a rock. As the tiller chops the soil, the place where it can bear, where it reaches to the bottom and the last piece that it can grab as it scrapes off that, that last piece at let's say four or six or eight inch, depending on how big your tiller is, the area directly below it, that blade as it comes around is pushing and pushing and pushing and eventually what you end up is basically a raised bed in the ground, right? You put, you got six inches of this loamy, soft soil, you pull it down and the bottom is like hard pan because you've compacted it with the tiller where if we just keep adding mulch, we just keep adding humus, we just keep cover crop, we just keep going like nature, the depth of the, of the tillage of that soil gets deeper and deeper and deeper every year. So what do you do with your cover crops? Do whatever you want, just don't go to a straight till method. That's, that's the big thing. My favorite solution with cover crops is the one I've given you though, And that is scythe them, sicket them, cut them. Spread them out in a sunny area, let them dry, turn them into mulch, return them to the very bed from which they grew. And I like to put them, if I can, right back into the bed that they came out of. Here's why. They're mining nutrients from that bed. They're making those nutrients bioavailable. So there's little bits of calcium, potassium, phosphorus, etc. that are deep that some of these cover crops, like let's say a, a, a radish can reach, that a tomato can't. And it's pulling that up, and it's making it bioavailable higher up in the stratified levels of the soil. So since I've taken it from there, I'd love to put it back if I can. It doesn't mean I never use some of it in a different bed or whatever, but that's a great way to make sure the nutrients that are being mined by the plants are returned. And if you think about it, that's how nature works. So uh, that's my answer for you on that one, Charlie. And good for you for doing cover crops in your garden. You know, I've been talking a lot lately about people needing to get out of certain states like New York and, and California and Illinois. And uh, I saying that I think it's already happening. Well, well, Jeremy here sends me some proof that it probably is already happening. Here's what Jeremy sent me. It costs twice as much to rent a U-Haul truck from L.A. to Dallas than it does from Dallas to L.A., I saw that a user comment under Yahoo story about wealthy fleeing California, and he gives me a link, I'll put it in the show notes on Yahoo Finance, and I had to see for myself at U-Haul's website. Sure enough, it's true. Houston shows similar results as Dallas. Listen to these numbers here. From L.A. to Dallas, a 10-foot truck is $1,528. From Dallas to L.A., a 10-foot truck is $838. From L.A. to Dallas, a 14-foot truck is $1,560. From uh, Dallas to L.A., it's $874. A uh, 20-foot truck is $1,800 going from L.A. to Dallas, and it's only $1,000 going back. A 26-foot truck, and these are right off U-Haul's website, guys. 26-foot truck, you're driving from L.A. to Dallas with it, and you're going to give it back in Dallas, $2,308. 
uh, 26-foot truck going the other way from Dallas to L.A., $1,138. Similar results when checking against New York. I'll just give you the 26-foot truck rates. Um, if you want to do a 26-foot truck and you want to rent it in New York and drive to Dallas, Texas, $1,931. If you want to go from Dallas to New York, though, it'll only cost you $1,148. What's the deal, guys? I mean, even if people are leaving, why is it, why do you, is it like, is it a conspiracy? This is the state's like, we'll keep you here. We'll make you haul and all of the other rental companies up their rates. Uh-uh, man. This is pure, absolutely pure capitalist economics showing you the truth. So U-Haul wants to make a profit. So you go to U-Haul in L.A. and say, enough! I have had enough of California. I can't take this crap anymore. I'm moving to a freer state like Texas. You are not the only one with that idea, and please, good sir, as long as you're not bringing your crap with you, come to Texas. Come on down. Let's make this Texas Free State Project, just like they're doing in New Hampshire, maybe a disorganized version, because we got a lot going for us here. Bring it on. So you and your buddies all rent trucks. You boom, you come driving across the desert through Arizona and New Mexico, and you get to Dallas, and you, you can buy a house for $250,000 that would cost you $2.5 million out in California, your love and life. Here's the problem for U-Haul. There's not so many people that are like, hey, hey, I got an idea. I live here in Texas. We have a great climate. We have our own electrical grid. We have access to the ocean from Dallas in about four and a half hours down by Galveston and Houston. Uh, we've got a lot of freedom. We have no state income tax. But screw this. You know, I need some more government and more taxes and more gun control in my life. So what I want to do is I want to rent that 26-foot U-Haul truck and drive to L.A. and 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 have to pay ten times more for my real estate and have the government stamping on my face. See, that just it, it's not happening. So the price discrepancy is U-Haul's going, man, I got all kinds of people, all kinds of people that want to drive a truck to Dallas. So if you rent your truck in Dallas and you get it out here and I have too many out here and I need to get it back to Dallas, I don't have any problem at all. I got people lining up to take one back to Dallas. But If you bring it from Dallas to, uh, if you bring it from, if you're looking for somebody to go from LA or from, from Dallas back to LA, it's, it's completely the opposite. There's just not a lot of people doing that. So the reason I have to charge you more when you drive to Dallas is because now I'm going to end up with a, a large, disproportionate amount of my fleet of trucks stranded in Dallas. And as a business, even though I don't have a lot of people coming from Dallas to L.A., I got a lot of people moving around inside of California. So I got to have trucks out there so that I can serve that part of my market. Because, you know, when the person, you know, walks their, their, their $750,000 mortgage and has to rent an apartment because they're broke in California, then they, they need a truck to do that with. So they want to go down to U-Haul and rent one. Well, if all the trucks are in Texas or Florida, or any place else that's not California, they have a problem. So they have to build enough profit that if there's an abundance of trucks and not enough natural momentum to bring them back, right? If that's the case, that they can afford to actually have a U-Haul person bring one back. That's why the rates are almost double. Because maybe you can get half of what you need back, and the other half that you need back, you have to have your own personnel drive them or try to figure out how can we get a deal with a cargo it's a pain in the ass it's not an equal exchange 
This is the same dynamic in containers and shipping containers. Do you know why you can buy a great big giant ass, almost brand new, uh, industrial shipping container, paint it and set up to handle salt air, uh, and, and, and use it for storage or bury it in the ground or make a house out of it for like $6,000? Huge steel container for $6,000 when you can't buy a big wooden shed for $6,000 because China has said we're exporting so much crap and so little's coming back and we can manufacture so cheap it's easier to just build in to the pricing model that a certain number of those containers are expendable and just leave them in America because of the trade deficit So it's easier to just write off the cost of the container, and that's why there's an abundance of them, because we're not using that many to send crap back, or even to any other country. It's not like they're coming from China to here and then going to Germany. Due to that, there's an abundance of shipping containers. It's actually a good economic indicator. If you live near a port, and you start to see the volume of those containers getting more and more and more and more and more and more, that means that you're looking at a heavily importation, almost zero exportation economy, and long term that's going to be bad for you. You could see it all over New Jersey during the roaring 90s and roaring aughts. When everybody says it's going to be super, it's going to be great. And I was working that market, I'd look at those ports and go, oh my god, are we screwed? That's the same dynamic at play, except instead of between China and the U.S., it's between California and Texas. Or New York and Texas. So much more of an exportation of the citizenry. People are leaving one in favor of the other. And it's going to hurt these states that are living in stupidity more. More and more of the productive members of their society are going to take their wealth and their contributions and go somewhere where it's better Treated. See, Peter Schiff puts this perfectly. You can talk about what's fair. You can talk about what you want. You can talk about the way things are supposed to be or the way Jack tells you. You can try to make believe that the world is made up of magical, a magical world where you can fart and a unicorn comes out of your ass. And then when you sneeze, a, a, an angel appears, rides on your unicorn and grants you free wishes. You can try to believe that, but that doesn't change reality. And what Schiff says about money is it goes where it's treated well. Wherever money is best treated, it will go to, whether it's another country or another state. Many people in this country don't want to or don't have the option to leave the nation. The wealthiest elites can have their cake and eat it too. They can leave and come back whenever they want because, well, they have private jets to do it with. The rest of us can't do that. So we're using the entire concept of a republic to its the end that it was put in place for. And you're seeing it happen. And this is the danger, New Jersey. This is the danger, New York. This is the danger, California. You have destroyed your own internal economies. Illinois, you go here, okay? You're part of this. You have done this. You have written checks you cannot cash and you cannot extort from your citizenry. You can only borrow from Peter to pay Paul for so long. And the most productive members of your states are going to leave. You're, you're, you're witnessing... Uh, inside these states, the beginnings of a demographic implosion. And more and more of the makers are leaving and creating an abundance of the takers. And, and I'm not just speaking here, because this is purely economics. This isn't about anything personal with anybody or what you have to believe. This is how money works, okay? So 
in the takers go certain people who are pure takers, right? People that are on welfare, people are riding the dole, people that have never worked a day in their life. Some of them are people that the system is there to help out and support. They're doing the best they can, but they need some help. The, the, the limited number that are in the true safety net that are trying to get out of it. The politicians, but there's also public servants, That we need them to be doing what they're doing. We need law enforcement. We need teachers. But the reality is you can only pay for them. You can only pay for them by having members of society who actually produce immediately quantifiable and profitable resources. Makers, right? So when I say a teacher's a taker, I don't mean that in a, like a teacher's a bad person. Teachers are my family. I love them. Okay? It's a noble pursuit. But you're, the only way you can have that job of sitting around with children every day and teaching them arithmetic is for somebody else somewhere else to do something that is quantifiable enough for immediate gain so that they can be taxed on it to pay for you. Again, I'm not saying inherently there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying this is the economic reality that you live in. Well, these states that have done this, have gone to the epitome of stupid. Where, where teachers make more money than very successful business people. Don't tell me how poor teachers are. Because you know what? In some states they are. And in some states they are not. Okay? I'm sorry. You can believe the propaganda if you want to. But th when you think about the fact that you have a teacher that works nine months out of the year and you figure out how much they're earning in some of these states with cattle and you look at the cost of their health insurance and all of it put together, it's massive what we pay an individual teacher in some states and in some areas. Okay, I'm not even saying that you shouldn't be paid that way. That's a debate to be hashed out elsewhere. All I'm saying is that money's got to come from somewhere. And if you have a state that's so overextended with benefits packages to its employees, with all different types of social programs that are out there, and the people that are actually providing the funding for that begin to leave, I'm saying that regardless of what you think or feel, you've got a real problem. And eventually those bills can't be paid anymore. And the more people that leave, the more that problem becomes exasperated. And I'm sorry for the citizens of these states. This is not about you. On some level it is because you've let your states do this crap. But states like New York, states like California, states like Illinois, these states, and it's, it's funny how they're the most repressive gun law states are also the most abusive states with government and the most, the states that are financially the most screwed. And the states with the most gun freedom have the largest surpluses in budgets, the most freedoms, and the lowest taxes. Now, how is this possible that New Jersey taxes you out of the ass and they have a bigger deficit in spending than a place like Texas that has no state income tax? It's possible because the reality is that revenues in go up when taxation goes down. It seems counterintuitive to anybody that doesn't understand the free market, but that's the case. But this is absolutely the case. People are beginning to leave, and I'm telling you, the people running these states, they know what they've done, they don't care about you, and they're going to continue to do it as long as they can. But in the end, people are really going to get hurt by this. And it's time to start, th if you live in one of these states, it's time to think about being part of the departing Okay, it really, I, I know it's hard. I've been through it myself. I know how hard it is, uh, to, to move away from family. And in some instances, you know, maybe you're not going to do it. Maybe you're going to stay behind, but man, you better know what you're getting yourself into. I mean, the economies of states like New York and California 
And let me, so you don't fall asleep. Let me finish up with this today. I keep saying it. There's another boom before the bust, the real bust, the final bust, the, 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 the final acceptance that what we've done is irreparable. It can't be fixed. And that's the reality. And everybody knows it, but nobody's really admitted it yet. At least nobody in power. And we're going to get into a point where that's so in our face we're going to have to admit it. And when we do, all bets are off. And God knows what happens to this this nation then. And people in certain areas are certainly going to be hit harder than others. And people in these states that have done the worst the worst part of the crime are going to get the bulk of the punishment. Okay. Again, this is not personal. Those of you that take it personal, like, I'm from Illinois and they're not all like that. I don't, I understand. But this is a mathematical fact we're talking about here. Okay. And this is what your leaders have done and they've done worse than these other states. And you're going to suffer worse because of what they've done if you're still there. You need to get a handle on that. And if you're going to stay, you need to have a plan to deal with that harsher reality. Because what may very well happen is some level of uh, a breakup, uh, uh, similar to the Soviet Union. I'm not totally on board with that, but it's certainly possible, if not even probable, um, that, you know, why would states that have managed their checkbook well, when the crisis hits, say, Oh yeah, we'll, we'll we'll help bail out California. You think do you think Texas and Alaska really want to step in and be the Germany uh, of the euro to, to, to you know to bail out uh, you know Italy and and Greece and Spain? Do you think they really plan? Because I'll tell you, they don't. It's not going to happen. You know, Texas has got too much going for it on its own. And Alaska, the only reason that they can have the prosperity they do with the income that they have is because their population is relatively low. They can't afford to bail out California. They don't have the money, and Texas ain't giving it up. So the, the reality there is this, this harshness that we're going to experience. But it's also this. Don't get lulled in to the great deception that's about to happen. The economy is going to boom, okay? I, I, I've called it a false recovery since 2008. I wavered on it some, but I kept saying, it's. I know it. I, I, you guys have been listening a long time. You know I've said this. I know it's coming. And, and people, when we started to get this, this initial recovery and at least the, you know, the market got back up to 10,000, 11,000, 12,000 eventually, it, it we're like, okay, yeah, you were right. This is it. I'm like, no, this is not it. This is not, and, and I could have took credit for it. I could have said, see, because most people didn't get what I was saying. I could have said, see, and I could go, no, this is not what I, I'm talking. People going back to work. I'm talking employment dropping two, three points. I'm talking about inflation kicking in. And initially when inflation kicks in, making it look like the economy's taking off like a rocket. And that's the beginning of the end. I'm talking about a sustained period. Two to six years or more. I don't know how long. I'm talking about things like the U.S. becoming a, a major exporter of natural gas. Fueling jobs. Bringing people in. Loading up the tables in the casino. The problem is no matter how much money gets loaded up on the tables of the casino, there's no way to fund the crisis that's already been created in $16 trillion of debt. And this is the real danger. When this nation has prosperity, it grows its, death, its debt faster, not slower. It really does on sustainable periods of time. So, yeah, there was this huge inflation of the debt, Right under Barack Obama in the last years of George Bush, absolutely no one can contest that. And the justification was we got to bail out the country, 
But that's, you know, if you look at George Bush's administration up until the last half of his, 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 his last year, and you look at Bill Clinton's administration, really both of them were considered good economic periods. They, they really were. And Bush grew the debt faster than Clinton in a period of, you know, the people that supported Clinton won't like this, but equal prosperity. In, in reality, there was as much going on. Okay, the market didn't roar as fast, but reality—if you go look at it, number of people working there, etc. Both of those economies look good, and the longer we went, the better the economy, the more the debt grew. Ronald Reagan, right? For all you conservatives out there that say, well, you know, Ronald Reagan did all this great stuff, he also grew the debt faster than it had ever been grown before. When this nation experiences this next boom. Watch our debt rocket. Instead of, you know, being at about $20 trillion four to six years from now, being 22, 23, or 24 trillion. And watch everybody tell you it doesn't matter. Look how great everything is. It's all fine. Do not get suckered in. When this period comes, use it, harness it, bust your ass, prepare yourself, because the day of reckoning at the end of it is going to be harsher than if we had already had it. This may be hard to accept, but we would have been better off if in 2008 we had let the whole thing come down because we were soaring at 10,000 feet. But we're going to be soaring at 20,000 feet when it does come down, and we're going to crash a lot harder. We're going to crash a lot harder. It's going to be a lot worse than it ever would have been. The more we go, the bigger the crash. And understand that even though I'm telling you this boom's going to happen, there is always the potential for someone out there to play a trump card. You could be right in the middle of it, and if China and, 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 and Russia decide that's the time to go to a gold standard, um, they could pull the whole thing off the rails. But they probably won't, because they're coming along for the ride. right? The whole world is preparing. The whole world is preparing for this, this economic uh, paradigm to shift, because we know it has to. We know that... At some point, all economic paradigms have to be reset. And they're all preparing for it. So they're, they're more likely, as chess players, to put themselves in the best position to both profit from uh, the, the run to it and capitalize on the failure. I'm just suggesting that you do the same thing. I'm not talking about human rights here or anything when I say this, but I'm just saying that perhaps it makes sense for you to prepare your household the way that China and Russia are. That you're going to make sure that you are a participant in the, the, the economy, that you are a competitor out there in the job place, all of those things, but that you're taking a significant portion of the wealth generated and putting it into long-term preservable, divisible assets like silver and gold, building up your wealth from a standpoint of being able to produce your own food. I mean, if you look at the China plates, buy gold and silver, colonize Africa. What are they doing in Africa? They're buying mining operations. They're buying farms. They're shoring up export contracts with their neighbors. They're making sure they can feed themselves until the economy resets and that they're prepared economically when it does. I'm just suggesting the same thing. Some people call me crazy for that. Heck, my business partner, Neil Franklin, even calls me Crazy Jack, and, and I'm fine with that. People can call me crazy all they want, but I'm thinking that the information that I'm giving you here today uh, makes sense and is things that you need to act on. And with that, I'll say this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Show you. 